Um, but they don't have to. So if you want to keep them with you, that's fantastic too. As part of our community lifetime, uh, on Sunday morning, we try and hear stories uh, oftentimes from things and people and, and the, the, what God is doing in the life of our community. We heard about the things that God is doing and what he's doing in the lives of people. And so I've invited Burke Lewis to come up and share with us a little bit about his experience a few weeks ago in Russia. A couple of weeks ago, we got to hear from his sister, Megan. Um, Burke was on that trip as well. In fact, Burke led that trip with all of those uh, students to go be a part of what God was doing in Russia. And I really want him to share his story and what God's doing um, over there and more so what God's doing in him. So I've invited Burke to come and share a few minutes with us about his experience um, serving the Lord in Russia. So Burke, why don't you come up here, buddy? Thank you, Trev. Hi, guys. Uh, my name is Burke. Uh, like Trev said, I've been around uh, Westminster basically my whole life, and, and divine since then. Those lights are brighter than I remember them being. Um, and if you don't recognize me, like Trev said, uh, it's probably because I haven't been around much that summer, or this summer. And I've been in Moscow, Russia, uh, with my little sister and 26 other college students. Um, and I, I had the privilege of actually leading that trip. And uh, it's part of, I'm, I feel like I'm butchering this. I'm sorry. Uh, it's, it's part of my full-time job. I, I'm on staff with an organization called Campus Crusade, which basically means I'm a full-time ministry, missionary on uh, OU's campus in Norman. And so during the summer, we, we take students around the world. And, and I got to take this group of students to Moscow. Well, I kind of like it better here. I feel like it's less bright. Um, I got to take this group of students to Moscow, and we, we go to Moscow. OU sends a team to Moscow every year, and, and the reason that we go there is that it's, it's one of the most strategic cities in the world. It's kind of the center of culture and politics and learning for all of Eastern Europe and actually a lot of Central Asia. Uh, people from all over that part of the world come to Moscow to learn and, and grow and, and start new lives. And, and there are that, excuse me, hundreds, actually, of unreached people groups in Moscow studying on, on a, about 200 different college campuses. And, and so we go there to speak with those students. Um, and and we, we had a lot of success this summer. Uh, we, we shared the gospel uh, over 100 times. Um, we had a couple students come to faith, which is actually a lot in Moscow. The average... Russian student probably hasn't ever even thought about their spiritual life. And, and, and so, anyway, that's, that's not really what I, I came to talk about. I, if, if you guys have questions about the trip, I'd love to talk with you about it. Megan talked about it a little bit last year. But, but Treb asked me to share kind of what God did in my heart this summer. Um, and, and while I was in Moscow... While I was in Moscow, I, I was leading this trip. There were 30 of us living in a hostel, and, and I was responsible for the, the spiritual, physical, and, and emotional well-being of, of 27 students. And, and it was a huge task, and I, I had to rely heavily on the Lord uh, to, to, to pastor all of those students, to, to get them through the summer. And... 
And, and luckily, God, God began to teach something to me. He, he began to reveal something to me that I, I had never really noticed before. And, and one day when, when I was spending some time with the Lord by myself, I was, I was listening to uh, a sermon. And, and, and the pastor in the sermon made an observation that, that I'd never noticed before. And, and he said, it's interesting that, that Christ did not die as well as most martyrs. And, and what he meant is, if, if you ever read the gospel accounts, it's actually pretty striking how, how, how Christ almost whines his way to the cross. You know, when, when you think about martyrs, when, when you think about, oh, I don't know, like William Wallace or, or Nathan Hale, or, you know, the, I, I regret that I only have but one life to give for my country. These people that die, that give up their lives, they do it like valiantly, like heroically, right? Um, and, and Christ didn't do that. He, he was in the garden. He was like, God, if, if I don't have to do this, take this cup from me. And, and the Bible says he, he was, his sweat were, was like drops of blood falling, falling from his brow. And, and then he, he goes to the cross, and, and as he's hanging on the cross, he's, he's up there, and he's crying out to God, God, why are you putting me through this? This is awful. Why have you forsaken me? And, and Christ, Christ isn't a pansy, right? He's, he's the God of the universe. He's the most powerful being in the universe. And, and, and as I began to think through this, like, why, why then was it so stressful for him? Well, it's because the punishment that he had to endure was just that great. It was just so huge. We cannot even imagine. And, and being an all-knowing, all-powerful God, he knew exactly what was coming. And it, and it frightened him. It stressed him out. That he, that he was going to bear the weight of the sins of the entire world. That he was going to take on the punishment, the, the infinite punishment that everybody in the world deserves. Like, that's, that's incredible. That's a, a huge amount of pressure. And, and so no wonder he was that way. And so as I began to think about that, I began to think, well, then why did he do it? Why did he go through it? If, he, if he's an all-powerful, all-knowing God, and he's, like, at any point, he can call down angels and call this whole thing off. Like, that's within his power. Any point. You know, when the ministry begins and they, they start to to bother him, when they, they start saying bad things about him, when, when Judas goes to betray him, when he's, when he's in the garden. At any point, he can just, like, have a thought and call the whole thing off. But, but he, he never did. Even, even when he was hanging on the cross and there were people around him that he was going, that he was dying for mocking him, he chose to stay up there. And, and, and he chose to do it out of love. And, and this idea that God has chosen me, that even in, in, in the face of pain and suffering, I cannot even begin to imagine, he, he chose me over getting out of that. He chose us over, over getting out of that. And, and it, it radically reshaped the way that I viewed my, my ministry and, and the Russian students in Moscow as I began to realize this. If, if I've, I've been sharing my faith regularly since I was in college. And, and if you ever have, 
especially if you're in full-time ministry, sharing your faith, you know, I, I love God, and, and I love the gospel. And, and that had always really been my, my motivation for sharing. You know, I, I love God so much, I'm going to tell everybody about him. Um, but while I was in Moscow, and while I was coming to realize this, my, my motivation was not only a love for God and this message I was sharing, this message of a God who came and died for us, but, but I began to love the person sitting across the table from me uh, in, in a way I never had before. I actually began to feel real affection for perfect strangers. Um, and, and it's because even, even in my sin, even, even though Jesus knew that, that someday I would come and, and I would, you know, deny him, that, that I would turn away from him and, and even sin deliberately, that, that e- even though he saw that coming, he chose to die for me. And so I don't get to choose who I love. Um, but, but that's not a bad thing either because... Because this, this story, Christ, the Holy Spirit living in me, has, has changed my heart to where loving the person sitting across the table from me is, isn't a chore. It's just, it's just a natural response to my deepening relationship with God. Um, I think I've probably used up my time. Uh, I appreciate you guys listening. I, I know... I know I didn't really talk all that much about Moscow, but if you if you'd like if you'd like to visit afterwards, I'll, I'll be around. I'd love to talk with you. Thanks. Thank you, brother. You know, part of living in community is recognizing that God is always at work in all of us, and uh, it's just there's something engaging on some level about listening to each other's stories about what God is doing in our midst and. It's an important part of our, our life together. Um, so you have to bear with me a little bit today. I am uh, I'm coming off a bender last night. I had, did a wedding in Austin, not that kind of bender, but I did a wedding in Austin and for a great friend, and I love him dearly. And uh, so I left Austin in my truck about 9.30. And so um, it's about a seven-hour road trip, and I had to preach at 8 o'clock up the hill. And so I have yet to see a bed but um, I'm here, and that is all that counts right now. So, um, you know, I've been gone for the past couple of weeks. We've had some guest preachers, and, and I'm going to actually this week wrap up this series we started quite a while ago. Okay, so we're going to wrap up this God Is series where we've been exploring Psalm 103 together. And, and for those of you that are here for the first time, I want to give you a brief kind of catch up to speed because it has been a while and some of you are here for the first time and you're just going to catch the tail into this. But I want to give you how we got here so that you can understand where we're going. Um, I guess it was about five weeks ago now, my, Meredith, my wife and I were driving in the car and we were going somewhere and our kids were in the back seat. And my five-year-old, I've got an eight-year-old little girl, five-year-old little boy, my five-year-old is an all boy. I mean, all boy. You know, my daughter still crawls up in my lap and wants to read, and my, my boy just breaks stuff. Like, he just likes to karate things and kick stuff and blow it up. And, and, and so he's in the back, and I can feel him on the seat, just chopping at the back of the seat. I'm going in, I'm driving like this. 
and I can hear him talking, and he's talking about karate chopping stuff. And I know it's because we saw Kung Fu Panda like ten times, and, and he's kicking in karate. And, and in the way that Cooper, his mind works, he really starts with the small things and works his way up. So he you know, karate chops that bug, and then it turns into that bridge. It turns into dad. It turns into a building. He's karate chopping things. And then he gets to this point where he is in a Kung Fu fight with Jesus, all right? Because in his mind, I think Jesus is like the Kung Fu master. And so, you know, he's karate chopping Jesus, and I can hear him talking about it and Haley my eight-year-old's over here and she goes "Ooh, Cooper you better not say something bad about Jesus or he will give you a punishment and we started laughing so hard I don't know why but it was just so funny to Meredith and I that my eight-year-old's telling my my five-year-old not to get in a karate fight or say something bad about Jesus because he'll give us a punishment and then me as dad and pastor and person start trying to to talk to my daughter about her misguided theology, you know, and why God doesn't really punish it. And my wife's like, just stop. And we just started laughing again. But I really started thinking after that interaction, what do you and I really believe about the nature and character of God? I mean, when it all boils down to it, what do we believe about God? Who do we believe God is? I mean, we, we can say we believe something about God, but oftentimes our lives don't really uh, measure up to that. In fact, sometimes we say, you know, things like, I believe that God is a God of forgiveness. Yet if our lives live lives of, of guilt, racked with guilt, and living under that oppression of sin, do we really believe that God is a God who forgives? Oftentimes what we say about God is not really backed up with how our lives truly are. And so we started looking at Psalm 103 as the psalmist sort of paints this picture of the nature and character of God as a way for you and I to explore what you and I really believe about God, what we believe about who God is. And we did a lot of things. We spent the first week talking about the fact that God is worthy. And we looked at Psalm 103, and we're going to look at the end of it today, but we looked at Psalm 103 and the psalmist talks about that God is, is worthy of the praise of my inmost being. He says, my inmost being praises his holy name because he forgives my sins and heals my diseases and redeems my life from the pit. He crowns me with love and he satisfies my desires with good things. And we talked about the fact that God is worthy and that worship begins as the inmost cry of my soul to a God who is worthy of my life and my love. And because he did and does all these things, and we kind of explained what those are. So God is worthy worthy. We really spent that whole first week kind of unpacking that. The next week we really started unpacking the next three things in this psalm about God's character and nature. We talked about a God who is faithful. And we talk about often in the Old Testament the righteousness of God is attached to the faithfulness of God because God is seen as divine king. And as divine king he took care of the needs of his people. And we talked about the idea, do we really trust God With our needs, with our very life, do I believe that God will protect and provide for me? And we unpacked what it meant to really believe that God is faithful and what it meant to let go of control and truly trust in God. The psalmist then goes on to say, and that God is abounding in love. And we talked about that that word, the Hebrew word that, that we translate to be abounding in love, the word hesed. And we talked about how supremely untranslatable that word actually is, that the word hesed means Not only steadfast or abounding in love, but it implies covenant loyalty, it implies truth, it implies mercy, it implies the New Testament concept of grace. And ultimately it's an untranslatable word. In fact, in in Psalm 103 it's translated four different ways at different times. We paint this picture of God's nature and character being this love 
that, that we can't even wrap our minds around, that our own understanding of love doesn't begin to scratch the surface of God's picture of hesed, that God is that kind of abounding in love or that kind of steadfast love. We talked lastly about God being merciful, that we have sin and garbage and stuff in our life, and that God is merciful means he doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. And the psalmist says that as far as the east is from the west, as high as the heavens are from the earth, God has removed our sin from us. And you talk the idea that you and I deserve to go to hell. We deserve eternal separation from God because of the garbage and sin in our life. The Bible is full of it. It tells us this all the time. It says that we are dead in our sins in Ephesians. Absolutely, totally dead. Not sick, not dying, but dead. But God, through Jesus Christ, separates our sin from us. And it's mercy. That we deserve punishment, but God gives us grace. We've been unpacking these things. And this morning, we're going to quickly take a look at the last three characteristics of what the psalmist paints as God, as who God is, and who God is in our lives, and the nature of character of this God that we are here this morning to worship. But I want you to have that framework so you can see where we're going to uh, end up. If you've got a Bible, there's some right there in front of you sprinkled around the chairs. If you brought yours with you, we're going to be at the tail end of Psalm 103. Psalm 103 is basically right smack dab in the middle of your Bible. All you got to do is pull it open and sort of let it fall, and, uh, and there it is. And we're going to be starting in verse 13 this morning. But before we open God's Word together, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the testimony we heard from Bert. We thank you, God, that you are working and moving in the lives of Russian students, that you are working and moving all over the world. We thank you that you took this team from, uh, from our own neck of the woods, Father, from, from OU's campus, and you sent them to tell the world about Jesus Christ. And we thank you that you are moving um, even when we don't see you. Lord, we pray that you would open your word to our hearts this morning and penetrate us. Um, God, we know that an encounter with your word is an encounter with you. So allow us to hear your truth and reveal to us your nature. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the psalmist wraps up Psalm 103 by saying this, starting in verse 13. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. As for a man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it and it's gone and its place remembers it no more. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him and his righteousness with their children's children. With those who keep his covenant, remember his precepts. The Lord has established his throne in the heaven and his kingdom rules over all. Praise the Lord, all you his angels, you his mighty ones who do his bidding, who obey his word. Praise the Lord, all his heavenly hosts, all his servants who do his will. Praise the Lord, all his works, everywhere in his dominion. Praise the Lord, O my soul. We wrapped up last time talking about the mercy of God, that God does not treat us as our sins deserve. The psalmist actually transitions in verse 13 to a a really similar but very different concept when he talks about compassion. He says that as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Now in our understanding and and, and the way we use the English language, a lot of times mercy and compassion are interchangeable. We associate them very close together. But the reality is they're incredibly different concepts. 
Mercy is that idea that I deserve this. I deserve this punishment. But God, who loves me, has mercy on me through Jesus Christ, and I no longer have to pay that punishment. The psalmist says he removes that sin from our lives as far as the east is from the west. And as followers of Christ, we know that's because when we put our hope and trust in Jesus Christ, God covers us with the blood of Jesus, and we have new lives, and that he doesn't treat us as we should be treated in all of our sinfulness. Compassion is something totally different. Compassion is the awareness of the suffering of someone else and the desire to relieve it. Hear that again. Compassion is the awareness of someone else's suffering and the desire to relieve it. And the psalmist says the Lord has compassion on those who fear him as a father has compassion on his children. Now this really struck me. I mean, I'm... I mean, I've got two kids, a five and an eight, and I'm, I'm not a great dad, but I love my kids. And I remember in the, when my daughter was in the second grade this last spring at seven years old, I remember when she came home for the first time and someone had been making fun of her at lunch. We sat on her bed that night, and, and she's not, my daughter's not overly like an emotional crier, but she was so upset. And I cannot explain to you, and those of you that parents know this, but For those of you that aren't, I cannot explain to you what I felt. I mean, my heart broke so deeply for her. And it was something silly, but the fact that they were making fun of her and she was so alone. And my heart started thinking about what happens one day when someone really breaks her heart. Whether it's a boy or a set of friends in middle school or whatever. I mean, when someone shatters my my little girl's heart. And I sat there on her bed and... I have never been more aware of someone's hurt in all of my life than that just little moment. I mean, it seemed, it seems so trivial now, but at that moment when she was broken, my heart hurt. And I remember thinking, I will do anything in my power to eliminate her pain. I will take her out of that school. I will beat those kids up. I will do whatever. Anything. I mean, we've had those moments as parents where we're like, that's it, we're going to battle. Like, it's not that big a deal. It is to me. And as I thought about that, I thought, how amazing is it that God, God of the universe, is aware of my hurt? And not only aware, but hurts, breaks, his heart breaks when mine breaks. And that he wants to relieve my pain. That God doesn't just sit up there like that eighth grade football coach you had and be like, hey, rub some dirt on it, blood makes the grass grow, get tough. But God is like, my heart breaks with yours. It changed my view of who God is because I always saw God as as when I deal with struggle, I've got to persevere, as James says, because perseverance, you know, that's what makes character. And I think that God is this this God that sits way far away and, and teaching me life lessons. But you want to know the nature of God is that God is compassionate. He is so aware of your pain, so aware of your hurt, and he breaks with you, and he desires to relieve it. There's a difference in a God that has mercy on us. It says, you deserve this, but in my grace, I give you something else. And a God who says, I weep alongside your broken heart, and I will do anything to remedy that. I love that picture of God, that picture of compassion. 
we oftentimes think of the compassion of God as like this, God feels sorry for this pity. You know, for the starving children in Africa, God, God really feels sorry and has pity for them. But the word compassion doesn't work like that. It's not like I just feel sorry for someone or that God feels sorry that I'm hurting, but that God hurts alongside us. This is an amazing concept. And the psalmist paints it as this father-child relationship. I love that. So we know that God is compassionate. He's merciful. He's compassionate. The psalmist goes on to say this in 14. For God, he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower in the field. The wind blows over it, and it's gone, and its place remembers it no more. I love this because I feel like the psalmist is setting us up. And he says this. He goes, now you got to remember, your days are like grass. You are made from the dust. I mean, how temporary is that? I mean, you're like a flower in the field that has a, a few fleeting moments. The wind blows, and no one remembers. I mean, in the scheme of things, this is, is really how insignificant we are, which is true. I mean, we were created from the dirt, literally as God blew life into Adam out of the dust. Our days are like the grass. I, mean, I don't know about your grass. I can't keep enough water on it. It dies. It's temporary. I mean, you think about a field full of flowers. I mean, they're there for a season. Strong winds come through and it's gone and you don't even remember where it was. I mean, what a picture of humanity. And a lot of us, we think we're, we're, we're way more important than we really are. But the truth the psalmist sets us up for is how absolutely small we are in the scheme of things. In the scheme of eternity and in God's economy, we are tiny. Tiny. And then the psalmist uses my favorite word in all of Scripture. All of Scripture. My favorite word is the word but. And I love it because usually in Scripture what's happening is, is that we're, my condition is painted this way. And then the word but happens to show God's response. So here we are, sinful and broken and dying, but God. We always see that in Scripture, but God. And the psalmist does the same thing. He says, here you are, dust and, and grass and flowers that are blown away by the wind. And then he says this, but Verse 17, from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him and his righteousness with their children's children. In the middle of our insignificance and absolute smallness, in the middle of the idea that we are only temporary, a blink of an eye, a drop in the bucket, God shows up. And the psalmist reminds us that God is present. God is with us. From eternity to eternity, from everlasting to everlasting, from the before time ever was till, till after time will ever be, God is with us. Now this is the most traceable truth throughout Scripture. If you look at Scripture, this idea of God's presence is traceable all throughout Scripture. I mean, in Matthew 1, we give Jesus the name, by God given Jesus the name, Emmanuel, literally means God with us. Matthew 28, Jesus' parting words to the disciples right before he's taken up into heaven is, and surely I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. God is with us. What this means is this, God's presence is not some kind of misused metaphor that we tell people when they're hurting. Oh, God is with you. No, God is with us 
all the time. In the middle of our insignificant small lives, the God of grandeur, the God that made the stars and the heavens and the trees is present. And I don't know if you've ever felt alone. I don't know if you've ever wondered why you're the only one in the world that is suffering and struggling and hurting. I don't know if you've ever closed the door to your room and just wept. I don't know if you've ever felt that empty, but I certainly have. I don't know if you've ever been in a place where you felt like God could not be farther away. What the psalmist is reminding us of in the middle of our small, insignificant, weak, and frail lives, the God that created time is with us. And he's with those that fear him. And we talked about fear weeks ago. We talked about the idea of fearing God is really boils down to reverence and worship. And not only that, but God's presence is with our children's children. In other words, God is with us. And in those moments of despair and emptiness and longing, God still is present. Though our lives are small, God is so, so big. God is present. Even when we don't want to recognize it or see it or feel it, God is present. And the psalmist is reminding us of that. He says, God is compassionate. God is present. And then lastly and quickly, just to wrap up this morning, the psalmist ends by saying this. The Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. And then he goes on to sort of explain what that means. You know, the last thing I think the psalmist ends with is perhaps my favorite theological concept when it comes to the nature of God, and that is this. God is sovereign. Now, there's a lot of theological nuances tied to the idea of the sovereignty of God that I promise you in the next weeks or whatever we'll get into because it really is that important. But I want you to understand on a simple, small scale what the sovereignty of God means. The sovereignty of God means that God is in total and absolute control. There is nothing that is outside of him. There is nothing that he doesn't know. There is nothing that surprises him. God is in control of all and God rules over all, period. God is that powerful. Now, I have a lot of people that I know that have a lot of issues with this kind of sovereignty concept. Because we don't want to believe in a God that knows all these things. Because look at the atrocities around the world. I mean, look at the genocide that's taking place and the people that are dying here and the starving children over here and the people that are outcast and oppressed and and those that are being sold into slavery over here. I mean, how can that be? How can God know? So we want to pretend that God doesn't know because it makes us feel better about God's nature. But you know what? That just doesn't line up with Scripture. Whether we want to believe it or not doesn't take away its truthfulness that God is all-powerful. God is all-knowing. There is nothing that is beyond his control, his understanding, or his hand. And I want to tell you this. I find great comfort in the fact that God knows all and is in control of all. Because I know me. I am a weak, sinful mess. And I love knowing that God is in absolute control. Because I am not. And a lot of us live lives where we attempt the illusion of control. 
We're control freaks. We want to be a part and know and do this. And we say we'll follow God as long as we get to dictate the path or at least have input. And we're perfectly willing to give our lives over to the Lord as long as we can have some control on the picture. And we're like that in our marriages. We're like that with our kids. We're like that in our workplaces. But control is an illusion. It doesn't exist. The psalmist basically wraps all this up in the scheme of things by saying God is in control. Not only is he in control, but God rules over all. In the midst of your life's absolute chaos, God is not shocked. He's not surprised. God is moving. And God is real. And when you look at it in the scheme of Psalm 103, the the entirety of it, that God is worthy of my praise from the inmost cry of my heart because of what he's done in my life and what he's doing in the world and who he is, that God is faithful That in my life that sometimes I have a hard time trusting God is faithful and he provides and protects. Not always in the ways that I wish, but God provides. God is hesed. He's loving. He's loyal. God is a, a picture of what grace looks like. God is merciful. He doesn't treat me as my sin deserves. God is compassionate. His heart breaks when mine breaks and God wants to relieve my pain, that God loves me that much, that God is present even in those moments of of darkness and fear, God is present. And then he wraps it all together by saying, you know why he's all these things? Because God is sovereign. He's absolutely the ruler of all. And for some of us in this room this morning, We're okay with God being ruler of all. We just wrestle with whether or not we want him to be ruler of my life. And I don't know what you brought in these doors this morning or what you're struggling with or or, or what your hurt is. But I want you to ask yourself this question. What do I really believe about the nature and character of God? I mean, do I believe that God is all those things for me? Or do I believe that those are just things for somebody else? Because at the end of the day, as the psalmist paints in verse 1, our inmost being should cry out to God because God is. God is. As we close our time in worship this morning, we're going to have men and women from our prayer team that are down here. We invite you to come down and pray with them. Um, But as we close and we respond to God's word this morning, I really just want our worship to be an expression, a response to who God is, which is really where the psalmist begins this entire process, is saying, my inmost being, praise your holy name because of who you are. This morning, we're going to worship a God who is. And may this place not contain, not be able to contain our, uh, our praise because God is. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you. Um, for who you are and how much you love us and for your desire for us to know you, that you reveal yourself to us. God, we thank you that you are are all those things, that you are worthy, that you are faithful and merciful, that you are love, God, that you are compassionate and um, gracious, that you are present, and God, that you are sovereign, that you are in control of all things. 
And we ask, Lord, that you might hear our response as a cry from our heart. That as a people of God, we might stand in this place and sing at the top of our lungs to a God who is. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and worship as we close.